We've got a couple announcements just to give you kind of going into that planting root season. The first one is we're doing Financial Peace University again which is a Dave Ramsey course that talks about how to manage and steward your money in a really good way. Uh, The reason we do this is because when you hit something like a stewardship journey, it's really good to have an idea of what comes in and make a budget and kind of figure that stuff out. One of the reasons we went with uh, FPU, with Penn Peace University, is it was practical from the outset. Like day one, it's, it's just really, really practical. Uh, if you've never been to it, it costs 110 bucks. That doesn't go to us. That goes to them for the materials that you get. If you've ever taken it before, you can take it again, and it doesn't cost you anything. Uh, you can, like anywhere in the U.S., if you end up somewhere and someone's offering an FPU class and you want to go through it, you can actually just show up and go if you, if you bought the materials at one point. Here's the thing, though. When I went through it, it was 13 weeks. Now it's nine. What? I know. I'm like 13 weeks in going, oh, my goodness, just stab me in the face. I mean, oh. And now, see, certain things I should not say from up front. Anyway, so it's not, I'm not, I'm selling it. <laughs> yeah. I know it's a, huh? Yeah. I know it's 110 bucks, Okay. I know sometimes you think, I gotta be rich to learn how to save money. Because it's, if you don't have 110 bucks and you really like to go through it, we'll help you. Because we, we want everybody to end up going through this. And if you do the things in it, by the time you're through it, you can actually pay us back the 110 bucks because you will have saved 110 bucks. Because it's, again, it's very, very practical. It's a great course. So, uh, it starts on September 12th, like I said. It, there is childcare available. So if you have, kids and you need some help with that, but you have to sign up first. You can't just show up on the 12 and say, hey, I got 20 kids for you to watch because we need to make sure we have the right ratios in the classroom. So if you want to come and you have kids, sign up ahead of time for us so that we know how many people to put in the rooms. Second thing is, if you are applying for one of the redemption groups that starts in the next couple weeks, the applications are due today. If you forgot one and you wanted to turn one in, grab one in the back and fill it out and turn it in today. If you've got one at home, and just fill another one out today. If, if you've thought about it and you haven't filled one out but you want to, do that again today. Uh, redemption groups are great. They recenter us on the redemption that God has come to rescue and save us. So they're, they're really good on a way to refocus your life on the purpose of who God calls us to be. So it's a lot of stuff, right? I, they actually asked me to do announcements today, and I'm like, I am not going to be like, video me, hey me, you know, just, that's just too weird, so we're not, anyway, if you are newer, there are Bibles in the back, if you don't own one, you can have one, if you forgot one, you can use one, there are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room, look like this, on the inside, you will get something to go a little bit deeper in the message we talk about today with some questions, and then the other side, there is a kind of Planting Roots remix that goes through stuff we went before, and if you go here, there's actually a video you can watch on the internet, do you know what that is? Okay, I'm just checking. So you'll watch this video. It's, it's a lot shorter than a normal sermon. You're welcome. And then you can go through some of the questions in there to go a little bit deeper in that as well. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. You click on More and then Events in Uversion. will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes versus questions, announcements, and all that goes along with today's message. Why don't you stand with me? Read of God's Word. This is Acts 10, 44 and 45, and it says, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. 
Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who trust you and live and walk in your ways. That we would understand what your spirit brings into our hearts and lives as you convert us to be more and more in the image of your son. We ask that you would teach us to honor you in what we learn today and how we live that out practically. Uh, We ask that in your son's good name. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so I want to give you a disclaimer. I was having a really hard time finding a way to make this message come together for you today because i got a lot of stuff I need to get through in Acts chapter 10 to bring this on through. We're going to talk about words today like salvation and conversion. Conversion in our culture is, a, is like a horrible word. People hate it, but it's not a bad word. It's, it's, a, great, it's a great word. So we're going to take uh, last week in the early part of Acts 10 and the ending of Acts 10 today and mush it all together to give you a better understanding Understanding of kind of what's what God is doing in the book of Acts because God has continued to reinforce his salvation that is for all people so last week you have this guy named Cornelius he's a Gentile who almost all Jews would have written off simply because of where he was born and I, and I think I got a great way to explain what this is like I was talking to Christy Morangi her husband Eric is a Rams fan now, Eric has been a Rams fan when the Rams were here before and have moved away and have now come back. He's been a fan the entire time. And he's a little bit irritated at people who are Rams fans now that they moved back. He's like, I've been a Rams fan the entire time. How dare you be a Rams You need to be... This is what the Jews were like to the Gentiles. We've been following the law of God all this time. Now you Gentiles are coming in. What? Rams fans. See? Kind of makes a little bit of sense. Anyway, uh, the book of Acts will show you that, that Christianity is potent because it begins to go, grow through this thing called conversion. Timothy Keller says this, Christianity was not originally a set of doctrines or a set of practices one took up. Instead, it was a converting power. Jesus says in Matthew 18, verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now the word used for turn there, it refers to this older Hebrew word that meant to return to who God was calling you to be, the person that God originally made you to be. In, in Greek, though, it has this idea of converting, of refacing, like you're facing one direction, and now you're going to face a different direction. God refaces your entire life to go another direction. And what you see is the idea that Christian conversion is this idea of an inner transformation. It's where we also get the word repentance from, that God refaces all that we are. And what that means is uh, your temperament doesn't change, your culture doesn't change. Like if you're Irish, you're still moody and burn easily in the sun. It still happens to you, right? But it means is that everything you live is for a different goal. Your entire, entire motivation begins to change. Your entire life is changed because you were once dead and Jesus has now brought you to life. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. In the book of Acts, you see lots of conversions happen. There's one thing in common in all those conversions. What is it? Jesus! See, that's the, that's the ball I put on the tee for you. That's the only one you get today right there, by the way. Uh, but you have other things that aren't so common because you have people from different cultures and different backgrounds. And I think by looking at this, we can understand really what conversion is and how we live converted lives. Uh, again, last week you saw that Gentile Cornelius, uh, who, which we all are Gentiles, and he came to know Jesus and his entire household. How that happens is the angel of God shows up to Cornelius in Acts 10, verse 4, and says, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. 
what that means is God has heard your prayers. Cornelius is what's known as a God-fearer. He follows Jewish customs and Jewish laws, though he is not a Jew himself. And last week we talked about how they had this whole understanding of the temple. And in the temple, you had a place where the men could go and they would offer their sacrifices. And you had this incense that would burn at the same time. And you would see it go up into the air. And that was a picture for them of God seeing the aroma of prayers and of worship and offering. And it would go before God. He would find it pleasing. What God says here through this angel is that even though you're not a Jew, your prayers are still sweet to God. And God sees you and God cares for you. And so God has Cornelius send for Peter to have Peter come and tell Cornelius about the gospel, about the story of Jesus, the good news of Jesus. Because of what God's going to do, he's going to save these Gentiles, but God wants somebody in authority in his church to see it so they would know what's actually happening, to witness it. When Peter actually gets there in Acts 10, 34, and 35, he says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, before Peter gets there, in Acts 10, 11 through 15, God tries to open Peter's mind to what he's going to do. And God has Peter on this roof, and he lays down this sheet, and he has all these unclean animals upon it. And God says, Kill him and eat him. Peter's like, I'm not going to eat those things. Those things are unclean. I, I won't eat anything unclean. And God says, you don't get to call unclean what I have declared clean. And what this idea is that God is now doing away with almost 2,000 years of dietary laws for Jews because they've been fulfilled in the person of Jesus. But you have to understand those dietary laws, this is one of the reasons why we have all the Bible stories we love. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's because of dietary laws. Daniel and the lion's den, it starts out because of dietary laws. When the Jews were in captivity in Babylon, how they showed themselves being true to God was following these dietary laws. And now God changes everything? I mean, is Peter like, I could have had shrimp and lobster my entire life? What? That was something they weren't supposed to eat. I know, whatever. Okay. And it's not that God's changing it. It's that God fulfilled all those laws in the person of Jesus. And I'll explain what I mean. When God brought these laws in the Old Testament, there's three laws that were brought. They're what's called the moral laws. The moral laws are about who God is. It's about God's holiness in his character, who he is. Don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, don't sing in a boy band. You know, those, that's not in there. If, it, if I, I put it in there, if I, but anyway... God is not going to repeal the moral law because it comes out of his character. The other one, the next one is called the ceremonial laws. These are all laws about the temple, how sacrifices were supposed to function. Because sin is a common occurrence. Because we break God's moral law. And because we break that, we are separated from God by this thing called sin. And there needs to be a way to mediate that so our relationship can come together. And so God sets out these ceremonial laws so we can be in relationship again. And then you have what's called the civil laws or the magisterial laws. This is about how to live in God's country, God's way. Because at this time, they didn't have a king, didn't have a president. God was their king. And so he gives them laws to set them apart in dress and life and food. Like if you've ever gone out to eat with somebody who's like full-on paleo or full-on vegetarian, it's like you can't go anywhere with them. You can't, just, you guys are weird, okay? Just, again, some of these laws come out of God's character, these moral laws. This is why even today, God doesn't allow us to make idols, because idols will lead us into bondage. God calls us to not kill the innocent. We must protect people because we are made in God's image. Those laws remain forever. Jesus died on the cross because we are a people who continue to break God's moral law. We have sinned against God. 
But when Jesus comes, Jesus, after he dies and raises from the grave, he is our final sacrifice. He is our temple. He is what centers us on worship. So the ceremonial laws have all been fulfilled in him. The magisterial laws are also all then taken away because God set those rules out for Israel, not because they were better than other nations, but because God is making a nation of priests. That's why he was doing it. Dietary laws, clothing restrictions were not to make them better. It's for a purpose. So the world would know who to ask about the one true God. God said, I want my people to look different so they will see them and go, oh, that's who I ask. I ask those guys. But eventually, Jews use those restrictions not for personal holiness, but a way to separate themselves from everybody else around them, the people they were sent to serve and be a witness to. Kind of happens today, even in Christianity. Uh, you Christians will look around at people who have lifestyles they disagree with, and you should disagree with some lifestyles out there. But they, instead of stepping into those situations, they distance themselves and they run away. We should be stepping into those situations and explaining the good news and the grace of the gospel of Jesus. And what you see in the end is that Peter's vision of all this food wasn't about food and animals. It was about people. God fulfills the law so Peter would understand that everyone is unclean. And through the blood and the grace of Jesus, we can all be gathered together in God and be clean. R.C. Sproul says that when your hope is in Jesus alone for salvation, don't let anybody call you unclean because God has declared you clean. That is what justification is all about. Whatever made you impure can be washed by Jesus' blood and you can have access to God's presence and you can be pure. I mean, you are embraced by God. You are adopted as God's kid. And I think Peter thinks he gets it. You know, he gets this vision. He goes, he talks to Cornelius, but he's going to get it so much deeper by the end of chapter 10. Cornelius sends some guys to go ask Peter to come share the gospel. And when Peter arrives, what Cornelius does, the first thing is he bows down to worship Peter as like he's a god. And, and this is why Peter's like, this is why I don't hang out with you people. You know, because you're weird. You know, it's probably... But I get it. I mean, imagine an angel showed up to you, scared the pants off you, you wet yourself, and then God says, send somebody to this town you never heard of and ask for this guy that you don't know to come and tell you about me. And, and you do it, and that guy's actually there. And he comes and he shows up, ding dong, and he's at your door. What do you do? You're like, uh, Rams are on, you want to watch? You know, I mean, what, what do you do? You, what do you do? And, and I get it, because sometimes this happens to me. Not like that. You don't think I'm God, okay? That's not what I'm saying, okay? But, but sometimes I'll give a message and I'll talk about something and something will hit somebody really deeply. Like it'll just drill right in. And someone's like, how'd you know this was going on in my life? I didn't tell anybody about this. Because I, I, I don't know. I don't know. People think I have like this direct line to God for some reason. Like row five, seat two, you had spaghetti for dinner last night and you thought the meatballs are too salty. You know, something like that, right? But when I speak and your hearts are moved, that's Jesus, okay? I am not that bright and I'm not that holy. You can ask my wife, she will tell you that, okay? When your hearts are moved, you thank God's spirit because he is the one that is doing it. And there's a lot of people out there who want you to thank them and give them praise. Guys, our thanks and praise is always directed to Jesus. In Acts 10, verse 26, Peter says, I'm just a man. You don't worship me. We are all men. Jesus is God. You will see the apostle Paul do this, because people do that to him. Angels are constantly saying this, don't worship me, you worship Jesus. And so Cornelius tells Peter the story of why he sent for him. And Peter starts to better understand the vision that God gave him of these clean and unclean things, that all All people are called to be God's children, part of one family, that no one is unclean when we're washed by the blood of Jesus because he washes us clean. 
And so Peter then proceeds to tell them the gospel. Now, you probably heard this gospel. What, what's the, well, the word gospel simply means good news. It's this Greek word that's called euangelion. And it simply means the telling of any good news. But specifically in relation to Jesus, it's about the good news of Jesus. Now, sometimes people will say, I'm committed to sharing the gospel. And all they share is Christian gibberish, and it makes no sense whatsoever. The gospel, in one word, is about Jesus. It's about Jesus, period. You can share with your neighbor, Jesus changed my life. That's not sharing the gospel. That's the reason result of the gospel. You can say to somebody, God loves you. That's not sharing the gospel. Okay? What that is, is that's part of the gospel, but it's not the gospel. The gospel is definitive news about what Jesus has done to rescue and redeem us in our lost and our fallen state. That's what the gospel is. It is focused on the person and work of Jesus, who he is, what he has done, and then it goes to how we, by grace, get to also partake in those benefits. Guys, Jesus is not here to help you fulfill your potential. You fulfilled your potential, and he had to die because of it. That is funny, okay? That's in the, but it's also true, because we break the moral law. The gospel is that through Jesus, his perfect life, the life that we can never live before God, he lived that, and he imparts that righteousness to us. He dies on a cross as God's perfect lamb to remove what stands between us and God and us and each other. His resurrection, he brings us back to new life, that God is making all things new, including us. That's the gospel. And preaching the gospel, part of it is asking, do you hear the call? Do you understand the surrender to the grace and the will of God? What happens for Cornelius is his household believes that call. And this is what happens. So Acts 10, 44 to 48, this is where we are this week. I know that was a long setup to get there. You're welcome. Okay. Acts 10, 44 says, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, those Rams fans. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. And whenever you read a verse of scripture and you've got Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues, and like in the same thing, you got to weave the landmines because someone's going to get offended at something, so we're just going to go for it, and that's, that's going to happen. The, the point here is not tongues. It's, it's not, the point here is the salvation. That God is showing the church that Gentiles are entitled to the same giftings of God. In context, which is how you should always read the Bible, in context of what's going on, God is showing the unity of the church in his spirit. Now, I'm going to make a controversial statement here. I know what's new if you've ever been here before. Um, but if you're, if you're not a Christian, you don't think about Jesus, you're not going to understand what I'm saying. If you are a Christian, you're going to fall on one side of this or the other. And if you fall on one side, you're probably going to be very offended with my statement. It is this. People who say, The baptism of the Holy Spirit is an event that happens after salvation are exactly 180 degrees opposite from what the apostles taught. Okay? The whole point of Acts is to show that there are not two types of Christians, those who have the Spirit and those who don't, is to show that there is one God. We want to focus on all these things. The point is to focus on who Jesus is, God over all. Anyone who is a Christian has the Spirit of God, period, or you would not be a Christian. That's just how it works. I have talked to some people sometimes and I say, well, I'm just waiting on more power from the Holy Spirit. You already are empowered by God's Spirit for ministry. Whether you believe it or not, it is simply true. It is true. You are empowered for ministry. 
Baptism of God's Spirit and regeneration to new life, those are the same thing. It's conversion. It's refacing who you are. R.C. Sproul says this, We can make distinctions about the work of the Holy Spirit, but the point is that all gifts of the Spirit are given at conversion. The difference between those who have the Spirit and those who don't is an issue of this conversion, of salvation. Those who don't have the Spirit are not converted and are not Christians. Tim Keller says that Cornelius teaches us four things about this Christian conversion. And I want to kind of talk about these because salvation is all about Jesus and that's what Element's all about. So we'll talk about that. Number one, he says conversion comes through God's initiative. In verse 29, Peter says, may I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius' answer is, well, an angel came and talked to me and told me to go find you and bring you here. So Cornelius' answer is essentially, I sent for you because God first sent for me. That's his answer. Cornelius would never have sent for Peter without God first initiating. I mean, the principle when you look through Acts 10 is is not, if you're going to be converted, have a vision. If you're going to be converted, speak in tongues. That's not what it's about. Usually it has nothing to do with that. It doesn't happen like that for the Ethiopian or the 3,000 people at Pentecost. What you see in all these conversions in the book of Acts is their search for God was a result of God first drawing them in, always. And you may not see your conversion that way, or if you're a Christian, if you're, you're following, you may not see it that way. You may think that you're someone who looked high and low, and then you found Jesus. Like Jesus was a scoutmaster, lost in a forest with a busted compass. And thank God you found Jesus, because he would have been lost forever. No, that's not how it works. We are the ones who are lost. And sometimes we're so lost that, we, that we're blind to everything, and God shines a light in our hearts, and we grasp onto that thing. But it was God who shined that light in our hearts first. God is the one who draws us in, always. And I, and I think when you talk to people who have been Christians for a while, when they become humble enough, they look back and they say, I realize that my searching for God was God drawing me the entire time. C.S. Lewis, in his spiritual autobiography, he writes this, Amiable agnostics will talk cheerfully about man's search for God. To me, they might as well have talked about the mouse's search for the cat. Because it's true. Like, you know, the implication is the mouse doesn't search for the cat. The cat's looking for the mouse. We're, we're like mice, okay? What do, we, what do mice want? Whatever you left out on the counter, that's what they want, right? They want, they want food, and that's us. We're like, I want to be happy. I want to find my stuff. We want to be happy, right? We're not, and then the cat shows up. We're like, ah! Because the cat shows up. And then God draws us to himself. It's God who comes into our lives and begins to make the difference in who we are. He pulls us towards him. Now, there's this old hymn. I guess they're all old at this point, right? But, okay. It's a Reformation hymn, and it says it perfectly. It says this, "'Tis not that I did choose thee, for, Lord, that could not be. This heart would still refuse thee, hadst thou not chosen me. My heart owns none before thee, for thy rich grace I thirst. Knowing this, if I love thee, thou must have loved me first." Beautiful words. But this is the New Testament. It's where we love because God has first loved us. That's what the New Testament teaches you. And so if you are someone who's, who's searching for God, you get to search with confidence. I mean, Keller says, if you're searching for God, but you're discouraged because you can't find him, he says, the only reason you're discouraged is because you're giving yourself too much credit. You are not capable, he says, of missing God. You're not capable of longing for God unless God is first drawing you. So if you are searching, you get to search with great confidence. Secondly, conversion comes through usually a challenge to religion. And we're going to talk more about this in a couple weeks. But the idea that conversion is totally different than I'm working really hard, I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to, God has to love me. Like when, the, when the angel shows up, and he talks to Cornelius. You know, the angels is like, you know, because you're doing these things, send for Peter and bring him in. The angel doesn't say, keep going, because you might make it to heaven if you work really hard and get there. 
No, the angel shows up and says, send for Peter. Why? To come and preach to you the good news about Jesus. Why? Because you're doing all these good things, but you need to be converted. I mean, that's, that's what he said. It's like, you may be doing all these good things, but you're not saved by your works. You're not saved by your works. You're saved by God's grace. The gospel is never going to be lived out in our lives until we understand the difference between what it means to be born again and what it means to be good. As good doesn't save us. Jesus saves us. Lives surrendered to who he is. We must distinguish between what it means to be religious and moral versus what it means to simply surrender our lives to Jesus first and foremost. And I think sometimes people think they're spiritually okay. You understand the gospel the least. Because we are saved because we're not okay. And Jesus comes in to rescue us. Third thing is conversion happens through the transformation of the Holy Spirit, of God's Spirit. In John John 3, Jesus says to this guy named Nicodemus, you must be born again by the Spirit. In Titus 3, Paul says, you have to be born by the Spirit. That means conversion is not a matter of your will. It's not, I'm going to turn over a new leaf and try really hard. Conversion is a spiritual transformation that God's Spirit brings. In Acts 10, 44-46, says, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Now, extolling God means praising God. Praising God is a mark of what's called the psychological and sociological transformation that God's Spirit brings. And I know I just used dime store words, so I'm going to explain what that means to you. Okay, Psychological transformation. And it says, they heard them praising God. Well, what's the big deal with that? Well, in the scriptures, the worship is defined as attributing ultimate value to something. It's more than really liking something, like a, like a sports team or your favorite pair of underwear. It's much more than that. Worship is what you cherish and what you adore. And if that's your underwear, you got problems, okay? Everybody on the face of the earth is looking for something as the ultimate source and meaning for their happiness. Some people, it's the person they have married or it's their boyfriend or girlfriend. And if that's you... At one point, your relationship is not going to last because your relationship is built on that other person being your God, and they will let you down, and they will fail. People do not make good gods. Sometimes for people, it's their kids. It's, oh, I got my kid, and everything's about my kid. You know, one day your kid's going to go nuts because kids can't live under that pressure of being your God. It just doesn't. For some people, it's your own mind. For some people, it's your own happiness. It's whatever you value the most. I think Keller calls it your spiritual oxygen. I kind of like that. Until your heart's most fundamental worship is changed, you won't ever really change. You'll keep going back to where you were. When the Holy Spirit changes psychologically, what he does is he changes what we worship. Jesus becomes the center of our lives, or we haven't really ever changed. That's a psychological transformation. Now you have the sociological transformation. Peter knows these people have changed because they were praising God and they were doing this thing called speaking in tongues. We do not think that everybody has to speak in tongues, okay? What this means is you'll see next week. Peter goes, he talks to this church in Jerusalem in Acts eleven fifteen, and he says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. So that is Peter's understanding of this event. Peter sees this. This is what he thinks it's about. Now, when Peter talks about that, he's talking about this thing called Pentecost. Okay? Pentecost. Pentecost, for Jews, it was a celebration that happened 50 days after Passover. So it's about 48 days after the resurrection. Pentecost, they're celebrating together. God's Spirit comes upon them. And what they start doing is speaking in these things called tongues. And they go out and doing this, they talk to people that are around them, thousands of people, and all these people hear them speaking in their own native language. 
That's what's happening. Now, that doesn't happen in a lot of places when people get converted in the book of Acts. It doesn't happen to the Apostle Paul. It doesn't happen to the Ethiopian. It doesn't happen to like 3,000 people who believe from hearing this message. What's happening here, and Peter realizes it, he says, this is just like Pentecost. That's what's happening here. At Pentecost, in the most visible way possible, God is saying there is no language and no culture that the truth of the gospel is not meant to be preached to. That's what he's saying. All are welcome. Like, if you take in you and you put that against something like traditional Islam. Traditional Islam tells you that God speaks in Arabic. The Quran is meant to be in Arabic, and if you translate it to another language, I have a copy of the Quran in English, and that right there, if some traditionals know, oh, this is going to be in a podcast, oops. If some traditionalists knew that, I could be killed for having a copy of it in English, because God only speaks in Arabic. That it, it, God is not like that. Christianity is not like that. God here is saying something completely different. On the day of Pentecost, God is saying that every language is equal. That every culture is equal. There isn't one culture that's more appropriate for the gospel than some other culture. What this means is racial superiority has to end. That cultural superiority has to end. And part of the Holy Spirit's job is to go into each and every culture and recreate Christianity in those cultures. That the church then begins to come together in those cultures. Like, you look at Element, okay? And we, you know, I'm wearing a t-shirt and blue jeans and tennis shoes. That's, that's our culture. Like, you can go out to this church in the far side of Orchid, and you've got to walk in there with a suit and tie, and if you don't, you will be escorted out the door because you don't care about God enough. You know, but that's a you can You can go to Haiti. You can go to Guatemala. You can go to Egypt. And you walk into these cultural churches who sit in the middle of these cultures but still preach the gospel because the gospel is meant to go into all of these cultures. There's no longer any barrier. All of Peter's life, it was drilled into him. You are a Jew. You can't walk into a Gentile's house. You can't eat with a Gentile. They're unclean. And so God sends this revelation. And Peter starts to get it. And then as he starts to be like, oh, I don't get to call anything unclean what God called clean. And then the Holy Spirit comes and gives these Gentiles their own little Pentecost. It's a way to remind Peter what Pentecost was all about. And Peter's like, oh, now I get it even more. He starts to understand. I mean, despite the fact that God constantly has to smack Peter upside the head. You know, it's so funny. God's all like, Peter, wake up. Peter begins to get the implications of the gospel. That we are not saved by our pedigree. We're not saved by where we are born. We're not saved by how good we are. We're not saved by our record. Every human being is equally a sinner, but we are equally loved by God. Fourth thing, conversion comes to the words of the gospel. And this is important because in verse 44 it says, While Peter was saying these things, Peter is telling them the good news of the gospel. It is not just about the Holy Spirit showing up, it's the understanding of what Jesus had done. I mean, if it was, if it was just about the Holy Spirit, the angel could have done that four days before and just zap Peter and, or zap Cornelius and Peter wouldn't have had to show up. But the Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is God himself recreating us, remaking us. And the Holy Spirit, we learn, comes through our understanding and belief of the gospel. Like, some people say this a lot. I want more of the Holy Spirit. Okay, understand the gospel more deeply. Live in the gospel, the good news of Jesus, more deeply in your lives. You want the Holy Spirit for the first time? Believe the gospel. I mean, this is what Peter preaches to them in Acts 10, 36-43. Peter tells them, God has a law, and this is where it was, and no one could meet that. And so Jesus comes, and he lives the perfect life that you can never live. 
all those unrealistic temptations that, that get put up here. You can never live up to that. So Jesus comes, God himself, in the flesh, and lives those expectations. He was righteous. And because he is righteous, he is the only one that could actually pay for our sin, what separated us from God and us from each other. Jesus gets a blessing because he lived that perfect life, and Jesus gives that blessing to those who believe in the gospel, who trust in him. He takes our curse, he gives us life. How do we know that Jesus just didn't die, like Jesus died for us? Well, how do we know he just didn't die? Because of the resurrection. Because Jesus rises from the grave to rise us new life and bring all of these things together. It's not just about his death. It's not just about the cross. It's about his resurrection that lifts us to be a people who get to live in new life. The cross and the resurrection go hand in hand. It all becomes the gospel. I love, Augustine, one of the early church fathers, said, Are the real problem in our lives is not the rules we're breaking or the rules we're not breaking. He says, The real problem is that we have inordinate love. We have misplaced love. For example, let's say you love America. Okay? I mean, yeah, I love my nation. America! Right? Guns, coffee, woo! You know, America, fireworks. But you love it more than anything in the world. Well, if that happens, you love it more than God, it's going to lead to racism. And it's going to lead to militarism. Augustine said there's nothing wrong with loving your nation. It's when you love God too little in relationship to any other thing, whether it's your children or your job or your spouse or, your, or the music type you like to listen to or the Rams, whatever, right? The, the only way we are healed is if we love God more than anything else. And this is what the Holy Spirit does. He comes and he moves us to consistently recenter on the gospel because it puts Jesus at the center of our lives. Are you the kind of person who looks at your life and you're and you're always you always feel inadequate, you always feel bad, you always feel horrible, you always feel unclean. That's an inordinate love. You are focusing on yourself way too much. This is why I think self-esteem classes are just dumb. Because self-esteem classes cause people to look at, oh, look at yourself, you're good. Oh, look. And we cause people to look at themselves so much. The reason we have low self-esteem is because we look at ourselves too much. Because we're horrible. It's like, no, look more at yourself. I don't want to look at myself anymore. I'm terrible. I get that. You know, this is why it is God that reminds Peter, you don't get to call anyone unclean. What if you're doing that to yourself? What if, what if you hate yourself? You use the truth of the gospel that God has come for you. You use the truth that God's salvation is complete by grace, that you don't get to call anything unclean, including yourself, that God has called clean. That is living and understanding the gospel and the implications of how it changes us. I mean, you might be a Christian, and you might still hate yourself. You need to understand the implications of the gospel. That even for people like Peter who've been a Christian for a while at this point, are still learning and growing because the gospel changes us day by day by day. We trust God's truth day by day by day more than we trust our own truth. I think one of the beautiful things about the gospel is you have Peter, evangelist, apostle, like rock star in the early church, and you have Cornelius, Gentile, convert, Rams fan. You know, and Who's affecting who in the story, though? They're both affecting each other. I mean, Peter has a huge impact on Cornelius by preaching the gospel. I mean, he, he follows Jesus. His entire life has changed. But Cornelius is also having every bit as much an impact on Peter. I mean, Peter believed the gospel, but there were parts of his life that had not really experienced it. And this will happen as Cornelius begins to live his life for Jesus as well. 
It is amazing to be part of a faith with where evangelists convert the converts, but converts also convert the evangelists because we all learn from each other because the good news of the gospel never stops teaching us. Never stops. I love that when Peter spoke to Cornelius, you know, he doesn't say, I'm offering this philosophy as one of many philosophies, see if it works for you. He says, no, Jesus is the one true God, and this is all that there is, and it works because we saw him raised from the grave. He tells him, all things can be new, even you. I mean, Acts chapter 10, the point of this is for me to come here and invite you to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whether you have been a Christian a day, a year, ten years, a hundred years, you are still called to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not one and done. I mean, you are saved there. But the gospel changes our lives day by day by day by day. And if your life isn't moving and changing and God's working on you in something, you may not understand the gospel. If you're not a believer... I mean, you start today, trust in Jesus' salvation for you. He has taken away what has stood between you and God. You get to have relationship with Him again because of the good news of the gospel. It is beautiful. This is one of the reasons why we talk about communion every week. You take that cracker and you break it. It reminds us of Jesus' body, which was broken for us on that cross. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of His blood that was shed for you and me. This is one of the things Jesus says that we should do when we get together. As you take me, because it's a reminder. It's a reminder that everything that separated us from God and each other was taken care of at the cross. But it doesn't end there. You have the resurrection. And the resurrection brings us to new life. So we get to live in this new life that he has now given us. The band's going to come up. They're sparsely around this room somewhere. Uh, as they do, we invite you to take communion. As I said, there'll be some deacons in the back. If you need prayer, they would love to pray with you. I mean, if you would like an un- a better understanding of the gospel and how that goes into every part of your life, they'd love to pray with you about that. But I'll tell you, God works in our lives day by day, and sometimes it's a little slow, and sometimes it's fast, and sometimes it's jarring, and sometimes we don't even realize it until we're on the backside of it. But God does his work because it is God's work. One of the things I would encourage you guys this week to begin to think about, what is your misplaced love? What's your inordinate love? What what do you put above Jesus? Like if God came to you and said, hey, you know, this thing is really holding you in bondage and I want you to give it up. What would you be like? Oh, I don't that like Like if God came to me and said, Aaron, you must give up cookies. I'd be like, that is not God, that's the devil. Right? <laughs> but, but what is it? You know, because honestly, we all have something in our lives that we put above the gospel's call in our life. You know, maybe it's, maybe it's our own perceived hurt. Like, maybe you're, you're mad at your spouse, and you're like, oh, I'm never going to forgive them. I'm so mad at it. That is putting that above Jesus in your life. Because we are called to seek other people out and to restore relationship as much as we can. Maybe you have a friend who has hurt you at some point. And I'm not saying all relationships need to be restored, but there needs to be a place where forgiveness begins to take, play, take place. Because... Our inordinate love for ourselves leads us into horrible places. And so we must understand that the gospel is the good news that Jesus is above all things. And so we live our lives with him above all things. And that includes ourselves. There's offering boxes in the sidewall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. See, inordinate love. That's what we talk about. I thought it was funny. Maybe not. Um, But hey, that's why you get to give, right? It's part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's a response to what God has done. You know, so you've got to get up and actually give if you feel called to give. 
but it's part of our worship. There's food in the back. We invite you to grab something to eat, hopefully meet some people, talk about some of the sermon notes and questions as you go a little bit deeper with that, and be honest enough to talk about your inordinate loves, and then how the gospel can speak truth into that and begin to move you to a place where you live in the freedom that God provides, because our God is good. Uh, next week, as I said, it is groundbreaking. We're going to have a lot of fun next week. I'm going to kind of pull back a little bit out of Acts and just give you kind of overview and talk about some really fun wisdom stuff and how to live it out. Um, but I want you guys to kind of have this idea that by living in wisdom and living and following the things that you know the gospel teaches, we become the people God intends for us to be. You want more of the Spirit? Understand and believe and live in the gospel more deeply. That's simply how it works. We trust God who has rescued and redeemed and saved us. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would teach us how to be a people who rest in the hope that you provide, that we would stand in the strength that you bring. I ask for those in this room who have been followers of you for a day, a month, a year, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, I ask that you would teach us to understand the gospel more deeply in our lives. That we'd realize that believing in you is not the destination. It's the beginning of the journey that you take with us. That you lead us into more and more places where the gospel speaks more and more deeply and changes who we are. Father, I ask for those in this room who don't know you, don't believe in you. I ask today that the truth and the good news of the gospel would begin to restore them to life. That you would draw them to you and their hearts and lives would be surrendered to your goodness and your grace. That we would understand that we do not get to call anybody unclean that you have made and called clean. And they would step past all the boundaries that we have personally made in our lives to share and speak about and most importantly live out the good news of the gospel in front of everyone. So the world would know how good you are because what you have done in your people. That we, like those original Israelites who had to dress a certain way, even though we don't have to do that, our life would be different And people would notice it because you have rescued and redeemed us. And we would stand out like a bright beacon in this world for people to know who to ask about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that all would know and worship you. Teach us to stand on the goodness of the gospel. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.